I can see the emotion on your face. I hear it in your voice. Sorry, I. This is this is hard work for me because it is emotional. That's Sherry Thomas, the director of the Exceptional Children's Division at North Carolina's Department of Public Instruction. And I'm Rupin Fafaria, the Equity and Learning Differences reporter at ednc.org. For this episode, I got to speak with Thomas about her role guiding special education instruction statewide, what that was like when so many students who needed services couldn't get them during the pandemic, and some things that we'll see DPI do this upcoming school year to help schools support students with disabilities. But as always, I like to start with the person, with Sherry Thomas. Thomas worked in Gaston County Schools as a classroom teacher became a diagnostician, and then a program specialist in the central office. A friend encouraged her to apply to DPI for a position as a state consultant for learning disabilities. She did, kind of on a lark, she said, and got the job after a two-hour interview. Doing the job in the beginning was a leap of faith, she said. I mean, I do remember sitting in my cube that very first day thinking, what have I done? I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing right now. I mean, you know, it was just this leap of faith that if they think I can do this job, then I'm you know, going to get it. Thomas is now in her 14th year at the EC division, which is a team of about 95 people, making it one of the largest divisions at DPI. She's in her third year as its director. But who is Sherry Thomas? That's where our interview begins. Who are you? I am a wife and a mother. Who are you? I am a lifelong special educator. Who are you? I am a leader who believes in providing opportunities and support for staff and then watching them grow. Who are you? I'm someone who believes that all students have a right to a full and robust education. Who are you? I'm someone who believes all means all, equitable educational access and accessibility for all students. What is that like to, to, to think about those thoughts? And... Ooh, that every day, every decision we make here does affect our um, over 200,000 students with disabilities in this state as, as identified at this point, that we make an impact on teachers and other educators and how they are able to do their jobs or how they excel in the performance of their jobs. Um, it's the impact of local directors and providing them the support and the guidance and the listening ear that they need. And when you think about all that impact Every decision we make, small as it may seem to us, is, is powerful because it's impacting all of those people. And then we think about how families are affected by all of that with, with our educational system. And it, it's a huge weight to, to carry to know that every decision you make has that much impact. And when they're good decisions and they're right decisions, you feel really good. And when it doesn't go well, then you struggle. And I personally try to figure out how we can not make a negative impact. Yeah. How we can um, 
find the positives and support all our families and students and educators because they are so dedicated to what they are doing um, that it's it's on us to make sure we hold that to the highest regard as well. Yeah, do no harm while trying to do good. Yes, yes, exactly. I love that. Um, I, I cannot think of a more difficult time to try to navigate that than in March of 2020 and the months that followed. Uh, it was um, at best overwhelming, <laughs> but at the same time, things were moving so quickly that we didn't have a lot of time to sit around and think about it. We had to be reactive. And I think as, as special educators, we all have that background of, of you have to be flexible. You have to move quickly. You have to adjust and you have to shift. So even before we left the building on um, March the 13th of 2020, we had already had uh, calls with our local directors set up um, to start garnering questions and concerns and needs from them and had started pushing guidance out before we even walked out of the building. Uh, now that day we left, we thought we were going to be out for a couple of weeks and we would be back none of us had the idea we would be working remotely for almost a year and some people over a year. Um, and special ed is never easy to navigate. You know, you, you said that it's, it's difficult on the best of days because we're dealing with children with unique needs, with families, with teachers who have multiple students to support. And it's, it's not a one size fits all or always an easy fix or an easy answer. Um, so the pandemic really did compound uh, those normal issues and those those challenges that we always have are were were acerbated into a, the highest level. I think we had a lot of challenges that included, you know, the ability to provide appropriate and targeted instruction uh, with accessibility and support. And I don't mean just internet connection. It's students who may have motor difficulties accessing a device all day long in order to participate in their instruction, um, having accommodations for students who have those physical impairments that were impeded because they were working strictly with a, a screen, districts who were working really hard but still struggling to get things like devices and connection to the internet to students, uh, staff trying to um, provide that instruction but care for their own families at home. Um, and that went, you know, with our staff here. So the work day never ended yeah. because our staff were taking care of children and helping support that and doing their jobs. So, you know, routinely getting emails and signature items that I needed to sign off on at 11 o'clock p.m. meant that staff were working whatever they, however and whatever they had to do to ensure they were getting the job done, but also be there. For their children and parents. I don't know how our staff with young children navigated this, but I will tell you not one single complaint, one, not one single resignation. They were always approaching me with the attitude of what else do you need or what else can I do? And I couldn't have asked for more from, from the, the staff. So. I, I think that that's maybe, and I don't know that this is unique to DPI's Exceptional Children's Division. But I do think when I talk to EC directors and EC teachers around this state, you know, there it is, there's something special about the people who show up to serve students that learn differently. Um, I would totally agree. You know, um, 
it is not uncommon for someone to say when they find out you're in special ed, oh, you, you are a special person. And I don't think we're special people. I think we're dedicated. We chose this field for a reason. And because of that, um, it's all about heart and intent. It's not just a job. And um, I think you will find that from the the teacher assistant or paraprofessional working with that classroom all the way up through the state level that we, we are in this field because we have a passion um, and a desire to support and help these students. Um, and it's the joke is it's not for the money and it's not for the hours because <laughs> the hours are never empty and there will never be enough money. But it, it is about, um, I can tell you from a, a teacher level, watching that student achieve something that you have been working on for a very long time is without a doubt the, the greatest benefit. It's, it's money can't buy that feeling. Yeah. And, uh, it gets very emotional sometimes because we are so involved with our, our students and with our families because um, it's a partnership and it has to be to make it successful for that student. I, I think about the emotional connection with students and families. Um, and I think about the challenges in both in the early days and through last school year um, and how the connections in some ways were broken physically. Often they were broken physically. Students weren't in person um, and it was harder to have in-person conferences, even with parents. Um, IEP meetings, which are so important, weren't always happening in person based on, you know, state and national guidance. Right. Um, for you, for your team, and just in talking to, you know, the, the, the folks working with exceptional children across the state, was there a feeling of helplessness at all? Um, I think there was more a feeling of frustration. I need to be with my kids to help support them, especially our kids um, who, who are our more struggling learners, uh, who are, are more intellectually involved and, and have a higher level of needs, but but really for all kids, it was I need I need to be with my kids. I need to um, to have them back, but have them safe, and and that was a real worry because so many of our students are medically fragile, and they were at the highest risk of this this virus, and so keeping them safe was paramount. Um, I have heard from our local directors that um, teachers went above and beyond to just call families and check in on them and, and just make that contact. You know, we, we saw TikToks and videos and YouTube pieces and Facebook uh, postings where teachers were going by and checking in on kids. And I think they really worked to keep that connection in place. Um, that was one thing that for me was really important for our division. You know, they're not parents and they're not children, but they're still staff that are out there working and working at home by yourself is great but you also kind of become in an isolated little bubble. Yeah. And so we made sure we had our monthly meetings that were on Zoom, and I would ask them to turn their cameras on just to see each other's faces and just regularly checking in on them, and they would do the same with each other and, and with leadership. And I think we all worked much harder at staying connected. Um, it was an intentional connection. You didn't have that natural, I'm going to pass somebody in the hall kind of thing happening. One thing I also heard from directors is that there's been 
uh, in a lot of cases and in a lot of places across the state, better participation in IEP meetings because they were virtual. Parents could do that without leaving their job for half a day and having to lose pay. Um, they could participate in a virtual meeting at their lunch hour or take a small break to do that. And so I, I don't think we're ever going to go back to not only every IEP meeting having to be face-to-face, -face, even though it wasn't, we could, we could still do that other ways. We've got a good format and a good platform for how to engage parents. It's made it more accessible. Yeah. It's made it more doable, and, and parents are able to be more engaged with, in that way. I think the same thing is true for our students. I think we've got some students that we found learn better, maybe not sitting in a brick-and-mortar school in a desk every day. Yeah. That because of anxiety, because of sensory issues, they are more able to uh, attend to their instruction and really focus because they're not worried about all those external factors within a classroom that impedes their learning in some way. So I want to I want to come back to that. Some of the things that we were forced to learn mm -hmm. because of the way learning um, looked different for everybody. But before we go there, I wonder what some of the, um, I guess some of the biggest, I hesitate to call them losses, um, because I think that we're always learning even when, when things don't go right. But talk about challenges. Let's, I think it was challenges. Let's, let's use that. What were some yeah. of the specific challenges? Um, Screen time for everybody, I think, was a huge channel, a challenge, and that is the youngest child to the oldest adult trying to navigate the last year and a half. Um, and I think that parents who wound up being those caregivers and those supports for their students who needed more support um, really struggled with how to do that. Um, the, the number of um, comments that I've heard and seen and read from parents' appreciation for what teachers do on a day-to-day -day basis, just it warms my heart, first of all, but it also tells us, I believe that they see those those professionals now in a different light and the value is very different than what they thought that teaching was just an easy job to do and it's, it's not. And parents didn't need to be the teachers, but they certainly had to help support that. And in some cases, if without their support or somebody's support, Right. You know, there there is an access to the learning for, for a lot of the students. There is not, and, and that is huge. I think our EC teachers, and all teachers, but particularly EC, who's trying to fit around everyone else's schedule. So general ed is delivering instruction, and the special ed's got to come in, but you've got to balance that around when that child has just been on screen, how long they're in general ed instructional classes. I think there was um, a pretty good amount of blended instruction, so kind of co-teaching with the EC teacher and the gen ed teacher, trying to do those Zoom calls or those online calls together. Yeah. Um, but that was a struggle for a lot of EC teachers was that planning time of how do I deliver this special ed instruction that the IEP requires while they've already been on the screen for three hours, and how do I how do I adjust that time? Um, and then we had the sometimes slow shift back to face-to-face -face and then return back to remote. And so having to be that flexible, I mean, I said earlier, we, we are flexible if we're nothing else as, as special educators, but there is a limit to flexibility too. And so you're, you're getting into a, a rhythm of teaching, but you're also trying to teach remotely at the same time because some students could not come back for medical reasons. Yeah. Um, I, I think they 
had additional burdens in doing that. Uh, and I, I, then I think lastly, a huge challenge, challenge was, as I said earlier, keeping those medically fragile students safe while trying to get them back in schools and working with parents and and working with teacher staff, because we also have to think that we've got teachers who are medically fragile, and so um, they were at risk. And so that whole balance of health care has just been, I think, a, a huge additional challenge and burden. Yeah. I, I do believe at the end of the day, all of our teachers of, of exceptional children, all our special educators and related service providers have done everything possible to, to reach those students. And uh, we started out early on giving a guidance that said, Doing something is better than doing nothing. So it may not meet the mark that you've been delivering face-to-face, but as long as you are doing something to support and, and instruct that student, we'll, we'll worry about the catch-up later. Right. But there will be catch-up. There will be catch-up for all kids. But don't not do services because you can't deliver them fully. And I think they heard that message, and I've heard that come back to me. <laughs> We've, we, we did the best we could, and that's all we could ask. Yeah. I mean, this this is unprecedented. There there was no playbook even from the federal level of how we navigate special ed instruction. Yeah. And, uh, we we did the best we could and we'll catch up where we can. I, I think that, you know, if you if if we are able to remove our own frustrations and our own fears, then it becomes easy to see what other people are dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um and so it becomes easier for teachers to to stand in parents' shoes and, and understand what they're dealing with and vice versa. But I did hear, you know, a lot of frustration from parents who were watching their kids, um, you know, try to do not only remote instruction, but even afterwards when we went hybrid and then um, the EC kids were in schools four days a week. You know, it's it, it was a long time for EC teachers to be able to fully deliver the instruction, if they ever were able to um, last year. And I heard a lot of frustrations from the parents, and there wasn't a lot of, well, we know they're doing the best that they could, um, but they're also watching their kids fall. Right. Um, did you understand, do you understand that frustration? Did you oh, hear I it? do, absolutely. Um, it's frustrating for us because we know that if that IEP says they need three hours of special education services, they need that for a reason. And so when your whole educational day has been modified down to a three-hour span and you're not able to deliver three more hours of special ed because the special ed has to support and align with the regular ed instruction, there's never enough. And there, it's, it is frustrating not, not only for, for the parent but for the teachers because Again, we talked about that dedication. They're dedicated to that. Uh, they're committed to that. And um, I, I talked to a lot of parents who had that frustration of, of uh, you know, struggling through that balance of the time can't be the same virtually that it was face-to-face be, because it's just not humanly possible. And it is not physically possible for that student to endure that, that level of intensive instruction through a, a device and a screen. Yeah. So it, it was a hard place. Um, it's a place I hope we never have to go back to. I think schools are much better prepared now to, to how they can deliver with optional ways and, and maintain that instruction and, and keep moving. And 
I think most of our school districts have created a, a virtual academy within their district that parents could apply to that gives that option so that they've got some vehicle of, of ways to, to reach students who are still not able to come back in, in the building or, or teachers that aren't yeah. able to come back. And then there's always going to have to be that backup plan because as we've seen in the last uh, eight weeks, our numbers are not in going in the right way now. So we've got to keep kids safe and we've got to be prepared to, to adjust on the fly and, and make those accommodations. I think that, um, that, that for me, that's felt like the theme as I talk to, to people across the state is that we've, we've learned a lot and, you know, with the hope that we can be back in person, that we can do better. And so I'd like to talk about that. And before we can talk about what, what to do better and some of the catch up that you mentioned, I think we need to know what the problem is. Um, or, or to use the, the word that you offered before the challenge. <laughs> Do do we have any data um, or any sense of what the quote-unquote learning loss was for EC kids? I, I can tell you from talking with directors, they know that they've had learning losses. Um, they know that there are, it's going to take us some kids years to catch back up to where they were. Uh, a lot of uh, our guidance early on was to keep that marker of where students were when schools were shuttered in March of, of 20, so that they have that marker to move back from yeah. to see where they are as they are able to get back in to do some progress monitoring, some informal assessments, um, looking at IEP goals and, and how they have or have not mastered those goals. Um, I think that's going to be critical for uh school by school, class by class, even. It's not even at a district level because I think it's going to be different even at the granular level of, of classrooms. Uh, we know we will have the 2021 school year um, performance data. So uh, we will be looking at that intently, um, you yeah. know, as we always do. Uh, we are expecting that we're going to see some decline, but we're going to see some decline for all kids. And that's the key is that um, our students with disabilities are general ed students first and foremost. And so they fall into that big bucket and then we tear out the sub pot yeah. to, to look at those students in particular. Um, that being said, I've also heard from our lo local directors that they have some students who have really thrived and done better in a, a remote learning or a virtual learning environment. Things I talked about earlier, they don't have the anxiety. They don't have the sensory overload. Right. Um, they are more focused on that not really independent study, but it's it's a good way for them to learn. And so we've got some students where this has been successful for them. And so uh, districts are trying to figure out how to fill those gaps in. Going back into a school year that um, that I guess we hope we all hope will be in person, but we all know in the back of our minds that that may not be completely possible. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that your division and that EC departments across the state, what are some of the things that, that, that you all have learned that can improve education for students with disabilities? What are some of the innovations? 
I think the first thing um, that we have really done is is to strengthen our communication with local directors. Um, and when I say local directors, I'm speaking about traditional and charter school directors as well. Um, what started in March of, of 2020 as literally a daily communication to them with updates, um, with um, questions and answers that they were they were providing questions and we were generating answers on a daily basis, which goes back to those you know 14 16 hour days <laughs> that staff were pulling. Um, it then went to a three times a week, and now we do a weekly communication. So it has strengthened how we communicate with our directors. They get a weekly update every Wednesday. We try to include everything uh, that has come from the last Wednesday, any memos. It's all centralized into that one communication piece. They know where to find it, when to find it, when to look for it. Uh, certainly, if something comes up that is time sensitive, they can't wait till Wednesday. We will we will push that sure. out. But we've gotten a lot of positive feedback from our um, directors and coordinators around just knowing it's coming on Wednesday and they've got a day or two to process it and share it with staff before it may go out to other listservs uh, within our division. And so they have appreciated that. They know where to go find it. Um, How was that different from what it was like before? It was whenever it needed to go out, it went out. So they may get six different um emails through the course of a week <laughs> now they get them on wednesdays right afternoon and it's 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 become just a standard operating procedure that is really working well because it's also requiring us to think ahead to what needs to go out and when it needs to go out um we also worked with with parents i I believe uh, our intent has really been to strengthen that parent communication as well. And I talked about the listserv. And we really tried to work um, to ensure that parents were getting needed information, resources, um, activities that we could link them to. We did a, a remote learning website page and had a parent kind of portal or a parent section in that so that parents could go in and find things to do at home with their kids that would help them navigate that school instruction that was coming through the, the screen. Um, and I think that that has grown and people have appreciated that. I think we've also gotten a lot better at establishing protocol for a quick turnaround. You know, sometimes state government, we like to sit and wallow and marinate on things and overthink it. And we haven't been able to do that. Yeah. We had to use our own judgment with the caveat that if this is wrong and we get different clarification from the federal level, we will change this. And, and twice we had to do that, very small pieces, uh, but we were actually being more rigid than the federal government said we had to be, which was better than, oops, we, we didn't do enough, and now we've got some violations here. Um, so we've, we've tried to do that turnaround to think about it. It's also helped our division more um, efficiently connect all of our work. We tend to get siloed in this piece of work going on over here in this area and somebody else doing something else. And they're really interconnected, but it takes us a hard time to get them back together. Sure. Um, that is much better. We've gotten division-wide representation on anything we do now so that every voice is within this division is heard from a um, support standpoint. So our students who are uh, hearing impaired are represented, uh, those teachers. Um, autism is represented, the policy is represented, the fiscal side is represented. How's the money impacting this? Um, it, it really has connected 
our work and our staff are starting to get that bigger picture that they are a piece of that puzzle and where they fit. And I think that helps us communicate out to the field then because we can do a better job of explaining how it all connects back together. So heading heading into this year, you know, you've talked a lot about um, you've got the markers from March of 2020. We've got testing from last year and there's going to be beginning of grade testing. We're going to see where students are. And I imagine that there are going to be some compensatory services that are needed. Is, what is the process of getting kids catch up services going to look like? Well, I'm going to start with clarification of terms. So compensatory education is only required by IDEA when there is a finding of noncompliance. So an intentional not serving a student, students that comes into a building, they have an IEP and the services don't start for six weeks. That's, that's compensatory. They are owed those services. Um, a school does not have a licensed EC teacher for six weeks. That is compensatory education unless an EC teacher was helping provide those services licensed. So it's not like with our gen ed when we look at the learning loss and or learning recovery and acceleration. Correct. That's not Correct. what that is. That is not what that is. That That is the same for special ed, the recovery piece. Uh, we have talked about this. Um, we, we worked very hard to clarify compensatory education, which, as I've said, is a noncompliance action, corrective action finding. Extended school year, which meets has requirements to be met. It's not just because we're going to give extra summer um, support because they haven't been in school. There are markers that IDEA says we must meet. Hmm. We have called these services that couldn't be provided or that didn't get fully provided um, future services or recovery services, which is very similar to the, the recovery learning that we're, we have a department now working on. Um, so much of that additional funding that came through CARES and through the GEAR Act with the governor and and um, other other funding that the legislature was able to provide for us supported staff to help do some of that catch-up service. Um, there have, you know, there may be cases where there was compensatory education required because it wasn't met. Uh, if a school just said we're only doing supplementary services for special ed, meaning we're sending packets home, but everybody else is getting direct instruction, then that's comp ed. That's yeah. compensatory education. That is a required makeup. Okay. To fill in that gap, they've, um, I, I believe districts have done a really good job of doing things like pulling in tutors that I mentioned earlier, maybe extending that, that time, that summer learning program that they put in place. Um, not legislated, but by choice. That has helped, and that will continue to help. A critical piece will be for IEP teams to look at the data as they get back into school when they do the beginning of year assessments or when they do their progress monitoring, because you always want to know where you, you know where you ended. Let's figure out where we start now at the beginning of the school year and where those gaps are. IEPs may need to be amended to go back and recapture some goals that previously looked like they had been met. Yeah. But that's going to be around an IEP team making those decisions of what needs to be added. Students who had a minimal amount of service might need additional service now till they close that gap back that they may have lost due to the last year and a half. Yeah, um, but those IEP teams are going to be critical. They are going to be extremely critical and need to be flexible in looking at the immediate need and then how that impacts the long-term need of that goal for that student. 
conversations that I've had with parents around the state and a sense of concern that I feel from them that even pre-pandemic, IEP meetings weren't always going the way they felt they ne- that the IEP meetings needed to go, that they didn't always feel the right people were in the room, and that when the IEP goals are established and IEP plans are written, um, that they're not always followed. Is that a legitimate concern? And if that was the concern pre-pandemic, how can we, uh, how can parents have a sense of confidence going into this sort of catch-up period? Well, first of all, first and foremost, parents are an active member of every IEP team meeting, <clears throat> and they should be invited to the table anytime there is an IEP meeting. Um, there, there is now some flexibility. They do not have to be physically there, but they can be even virtually there now, as we know, a phone call. But they are an active participant in that team, and they have a voice. It's not a vote. No one has a vote, but it, they have a voice, and their voice should always be heard. Um, one of the requirements that our division has <clears throat> under IDEA, uh, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, I'm sorry, that's the federal law that guides all of our work, Uh, But under IDEA, we have um, general supervision requirements as an agency, and that means that we have to ensure that IDEA is implemented to the full intent of the law. That means that uh, individual educational programs or IEPs are developed appropriately and implemented fully. If that is not happening, then there are some courses of action that parents can take. One, they can start by calling our office here and talking with someone, um, and we then in turn will follow up with the school or the district um, to to ensure that that IEP is being implemented, to, to raise that alert, that that concern has been raised, because we also find many times a parent feels this way, but they don't want to talk to the school because they're uncomfortable, because they don't want to be pushy, or they don't you know, want that school to think they're the problem parent. Right. Well, um, and their student still is yeah, going to be in the school. still there. And so it's, it, first of all, building that relationship is, is paramount to having a good, successful um, school experience with a student who has a disability. And that's, that's a critical piece. And that's on both the parents and the school side to work to build that relationship. So we have to, as an agency, ensure this, that, as I said, IEPs are implemented it's not an option to do part of the IEP and not all of the IEP. Um, I mentioned a process they can call us. They can request a facilitated IEP meeting. They can request a facilitated IEP meeting, as can a school school at any time as well. They can request mediation if they cannot come to agreement on the IEP. And then ultimately through our due process um, system, they could file a state complaint if there are violations of the IDEA, the federal law, which says the IEP must be implemented. So if an IEP is not being implemented, if services are not being provided, a state complaint can be filed by the parent. And then ultimately they also have the option of going to due process, which is outside our building, but with the administrative um, office of the courts. Um, We always try to prevent anyone from having to get into a legal situation. That's not good for anyone, school or parents especially. Um, But we do have vehicles to correct 
when when the IEP is not being followed and implemented. Um, we interestingly have been watching our state complaints come in. They have not accelerated due to the pandemic, due to our schools being shuttered and virtual learning. Uh, we've actually had very few state complaints around the, the virtual learning experience and IEPs not being implemented, um, which we found a little bit um, pleasantly surprising. I was anticipating that we were going to see a lot more. Uh, I think that goes back to that earlier conversation we had about everybody working really hard and trying really hard and, and seeing that that effort was there. But if there is um, a finding that the IEP has not been implemented appropriately, that the parent has not been a part of that meeting, then certainly there's always corrective action that those districts have to follow through with and report back to our office within a year to ensure that whatever violation was committed is, is corrected. If it's um, additional services or um, compensatory services, that would be a corrective action we could order if services weren't being delivered. And then we monitor that to ensure that that's being followed up with. So um, I guess if I could say anything to parents, it would be please talk to your teacher, talk to your building administrator, talk to your local EC director, and then come to us if you don't get satisfaction through all of that. Um, yeah. Because I'm going to ask those questions of a parent first. Have you talked to your director? Have you talked to the principal? Have you talked to the teacher? Yeah. And when all of that has failed or not pr proven uh, to correct the problem, then we are happy to engage in conversations and support the parents. We have a, a parent liaison position here that we have created. It's been in place uh, for about seven years now. Who is the parent liaison? Her name is Alexis Utz. And so she is here to take parent phone calls, to talk with parents through the process, to provide parent support, as well as uh, all of our consultants who work in our um, um, progress monitoring and audit section, which is where our policy work is. So okay. that's where the state complaints come through. And those consultants are all versed fully in IDEA, the requirements, um, and the implementation in North Carolina. And so they are there to help support families uh, as well as school staff. As Thomas talked about the parent resources and communication going out to schools, she also paused to mention an ask of the General Assembly, which funds the education system. The General Assembly provides funds for EC kids on a per student basis. But that funding is capped at per student up to 12.75% of the students in that district or charter school. That can put a strain, in particular, on districts that don't receive enough to cover expenses for their EC kids. Sometimes because the EC students in their districts have greater needs than other EC students. So I think what one of the... the um realities that have been made even more clear during the pandemic is the differentiation in needs of students with disabilities. We have students who um, do not have a visible disability and so and these are students who may need just minimal support and are primarily if, if not fully in general education with that educational support from special ed as needed. Uh, and then we have our most intensive need kids who are getting multiple levels of services 
uh, are in a special education classroom with a special education teacher for their full educational uh, instruction of the day with added services of a nurse or an occupational therapist or a speech therapist or a physical therapist, and sometimes all of those things because they have very intensive needs. Um, we, we fund each of those children that I just described at the same level in North Carolina. So if you are a student with a minimal amount of service, your district gets the same amount of dollars in state EC funding for that student as that high needs intensive um, services student. And so there's there's been conversation over the last several years about doing a study to look at a tiered level of funding. And if, if anything this pandemic has shown us is that we aren't all the same and we don't all receive our services in the same way. And we, we have to be even more flexible than, than before. And being able to target services directly to those students um, that have those high needs, because those are the students that are winding up being more and more in our local districts. That, that student, we've had a lot of shift out of public school now. And most of those students are not our high intensive need kids with special ed. They are kids with the minimal amount. So those kids are gone and we've got more needs. The dollars get stretched even thinner now than they did before. And so that would be to, to ensure and enhance services. Um, if I had one ask of, of our uh, General Assembly and our policymakers, it would be to really look at doing that study on a tiered formula of funding to, to look at other states that have done this and start with a base, but, but look at how we equate some better intent of funding to, to the higher needs services. That would be huge for special education in North Carolina. So if, 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 my, if I had the magic crystal ball to say which, which way do we go, we go with the tiered funding and we step away from the cap. As we wrapped up our interview, Thomas wanted to lift up some things the division is doing to support EC teachers across the state, both to work on retaining educators and also to support them socially and emotionally. We are working to implement an initiative to support new special ed teachers in their first two years, um, giving them membership to the Council for Exceptional Children, which is our national um, organization for our field providing some mentors in state to help support them, creating cohorts where they will be going through some professional development, all of this for free, coming to our uh, Conference on Exceptional Children as our guest, and really trying to support these um, first two, year te you know, two years of their, their teaching career, those, those new teachers, B1s and B2s, so that they have that support to carry on this job because it's a hard job, and if you're in a school and you're the only EC teacher you need that support and you're brand new on top of it, it just gets really difficult. So we're hoping that that's gonna help with our retention of our special ed teachers. We know we have a huge gap uh, of teachers. There are not enough in the state. We've got districts looking for um, hundreds of teachers oh, yeah. and some of them are, are at a hundred of special ed teacher positions they're trying to fill. Yeah. So the more we can help support that from our, our um, state level, we want to do that. Um, we're also working really hard within our division and across the agency around social emotional learning in our schools. And that's a critical piece as we return to buildings. Um, we have students who are, are struggling with that re-entry, so to speak, back into a group of people. But we also have adults 
struggling with that. If you are an introvert, being at home and now being back in the public, um, engaging with, with conversations is extremely difficult. And so uh, trying to support that social and emotional learning for adults and students in our schools in any way we can, uh, it's just about taking time for yourself and, and your good mental social health that, that is so critical. And schools are doing a great job of, of focusing on that and addressing that and finding ways to, to help support staff. And we're, we're partnering in that to support, you know, with training and, and anything that we can. Um, I think we've generated better technology and better uses of technology. And we were forced to. We so. were forced to. And so we, we are in a different world now where everything should now be accessible to all, to parents, to students, to teachers. And, and that's a good feeling. It's going to change how we, and has changed, how we are delivering professional learning because you don't have to be in a classroom sitting with us to get that learning that you need. Thank you to Sherry Thomas for talking to me for this podcast episode. This episode was produced by Ali Lindenberg and me, Rupin Fafaria, with help from Eric Frederick. Thanks for listening.